Well, good morning, everyone. Morning, morning, morning. Good to see you. Um, I want to just say uh, a couple of words before I start of uh, praise to all of those that were involved in last night's storytelling um, event. It was a wonderful evening. Clearly, all of those that had prepared the stories and the music had worked very hard um, to bring it all to life for us. They took us through um, uh, the journey, really, of the, the people of Israel coming out of Egypt and um, in the wilderness. And really, for me, it, it brought the whole thing um, to life, and I found it hugely enjoyable. Um, and if you, if you missed it, if you didn't get a chance to see it yesterday, um, you needn't worry, because there are, for the first year ever, repeat performances coming. I don't know if that's good news for those involved or not. They've got to do it all over again. But the chance to see it again, and, and the, the dates for that are in the newsletter. Um, I think the next is the Sunday the 17th um, at St. Ed's, and it's at St. George's at the end of the month as well. But I really encourage you to go and see those guys, because it was wonderful. Um, I, I particularly want to say well done to the band this morning, because they were here late last night till 10 o'clock, um, singing their hearts out, and then they were here earlier this morning preparing for worship. So thank you to those guys um, for all of their efforts there. Um, I also really want to just say thank you to you guys um, for your support of me over the past kind of three or four years um, as the assistant pastor here at the church. Um, some of you may not know, but I'm on a journey at the moment. Um, it's called um, MIT. It's part of Elium's training for those that are coming into ministry and um, looking to be ordained in the future. Um, and, and I sort of have to do a lot of introspection and self-reflection on that and, and try and figure out whether I can do the job, um, and your affirmation of me is, is always very much appreciated. And um, I say that really this morning because I have a new challenge this morning, a brand new challenge. Um, it might come as a surprise to some of you, but this kind of speaking thing from the front, it doesn't come very naturally to me. It's something I work very hard at. It's something that I'm learning and trying to get better at. And normally I, I have a, a good amount of time to prepare myself in the week and, and get ready and think about and pray about all that I'm going to say from the platform this morning. However, this week, um, Steve was down to start us off on the new series and uh, unfortunately is ill and suffering at, at home. I saw him last night and he's a different colour than he should be. Um, and so he contacted me this morning at half five and said, uh, would you mind um, taking over the sermon for us today? Um, so he sent me his notes. Um, I'm not going to do it in a Welsh accent. <laughs> My Welsh accent's not very good. It sort of goes Indian. Um, <laughs> I will try and present it in the, way, the best way that I can to you this morning. Um, but if I stumble or fumble or... or misunderstand what he's written, um, just forgive me in advance. That's, um, that's really all that I'm saying. So what are we looking at? This is a brand new series, Final Encounters. Um, and really what we want to do with this, this, this period of time as we lead up to Easter, to Good Friday and Easter, is have a look at some of the encounters that Jesus had with people during that final week of his life. It's often called um, Holy Week or Passion Week. Um, and there's going to be six talks in this series as we approach um, Easter Sunday. Um, Easter Sunday, we're going to have a baptism service, which we're really excited about. Thank you. Yes, come on. Let's get excited. Shall I do it again? Easter Sunday, we're going to have a baptism service. Yes. 
Come on. So we've got a few um, um, candidates for um, the baptism already. But if you uh, are considering it and and you want to chat to me or Steve about it and see whether this might be the time for you, um, please do so because we would love to dunk you. Um, We're going to have a break in a couple of weeks because we've got a guest speaker coming in to speak to us as well, Um, a chap called Dave Newton who's the principal of Regents Theological College um, and the director of training for Elim. So he's going to come and talk to us about the college and, and bring a word to us that morning as well. So that's going to be really great. But other than that, we're on this new series, and we've got two readings this morning. Um, The first is in Mark 14. Mark 14. If you've got your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, please do so. I'll put the words up as well. This is what it says in verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's worth of wages and the money given to the poor and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. And truly I tell you, whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So this story is also told in Matthew's Gospel and in John's Gospel. The details are very similar in Matthew's um, uh, to what we just read in Mark, but the details in John are slightly different. He adds a few more things. So um, John chapter 12 is going to be our second reading, um, reading from verse 1 through to verse 8. It's the same story, but you can play spot the difference now. Um, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, to whom Jesus had risen from the dead, had raised from the dead, sorry. Um, Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to portray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So when we read these two accounts side by side together like that, there's a sort of uh, an interesting kind of dovetailing of information that we get here. Uh, Mark, for instance, tells us that the meal they were having was in the home of Simon the leper. 
And you may or may not be aware, but lepers in Jesus' day were um, ostracized. They were cast out. They had to live separate lives in, in colonies on their own because they were thought to be um, infected. And it was very like Jesus, of course, to say, no, I'm going to come to your house. Oh, you're somebody that everybody else has rejected and done away with. It's, it's you then that I want to spend time with. And perhaps this was someone that Jesus had healed. We, of course, have other accounts of Jesus healing lepers were not particularly um, told. John fails to mention that detail, but he does tell us that the woman who, was anointed, who anointed Jesus with perfume was Mary, a sister of Martha and of Lazarus. Mark tells us that she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head, while John tells us that she poured the perfume on his feet and used her hair to wipe it around. Perhaps it was both. It's interesting the things that stick in the writer's mind and what they decide to include. Mark tells us that some of those present were criticizing her um, for wasting the perfume in this way. Matthew narrows it down and tells us it was actually the disciples that were criticizing her. And John, of course, goes for the jugular, jugular and says, no, it was Judas who was the one that was portraying, the one that portrayed Jesus, who was criticizing her, sizing her. He really throws him under the bus there, doesn't he? But, you know, Mark and John, they agree on a number of different points. They both agree that the meal was taking place in Bethany, that the perfume was um, very, very expensive, pure nard. Not the prettiest of names, is it, nard? You can't really imagine those, you know, those perfume adverts with, like, Natalie Portman on a motorbike saying, <laughs> pure nard. <laughs> for him, for me, for you. I can't, I can't quite picture that. <laughs> Steve didn't write that bit um, <laughs> this is a fun game you can spot the bits that I add in um, so nard is apparently extracted from a plant in northern India and it's cost more than a year's worth of wages wow more than a year's wages you thought the perfume aisle in boots was expensive this, is, um, this was much more and we're also told by both Mark and John that Jesus defended her from criticism he defended her. He told the critics to leave her alone. He commended her for preparing his body for burial. And, of course, we read that later on. We find out that the women that were with him followed him to where he was buried, and they prepared spices and, 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 and anointments. But because it was the Passover, they had to leave, and they weren't able to do that. But Mary does it beforehand. It's okay. Um, but the story, you know, it's a strange one, isn't it? It might appear really weird to our kind of Western ears 2,000 years on. If you haven't read or heard this story before, you might be thinking, what on earth is this all about? I mean, it doesn't really fit in our modern context very easily. You can't really imagine it, can you? Sort of sitting around with your mates, having some pizza, and someone walks in and cracks a bottle of Chanel Number no. 5 all over your head and then starts to take your shoes off. You'd be out the door, wouldn't you? You'd be running for the hills. But not Jesus. He was pleased. And he praises her for her actions. He says, she's done a beautiful thing to me. He said, she did what she could. And perhaps the most amazing thing he says is that whenever the gospel is preached through the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow. 2,000 years on, encountering in this story of a, a private meal in a village named Bethany just outside of Jerusalem is still being talked about in churches like this one. So what's so special about this story? 
And perhaps more importantly, what's the message for us today? Why do we have it in our scriptures? Why do three of the gospel writers decide to include it? I suppose, if nothing else, Jesus gave her a really beautiful epitaph, didn't he? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She did what she could. I wonder if you could write your own epitaph, what you might say about yourself. I think I'd be quite happy with Dan did beautiful things for Jesus. He did what he could. So here are a few examples of some perhaps less than wonderful epitaphs found on gravestones. Firstly, sacred to the memory of Major James Brush, who was killed by the accidental discharge of a pistol by his orderly, 8th of April, 1814. Well done, good and faithful servant. (laughs) From a churchyard in Blackpool, England, carved in the shape of an open book, the inscription, Alfred Hastead, book editor, lent September 28th, 1852, returned May 14th, 1907. Quite nice, that one. On the grave of one Ezekiel Aki in East Dalla House Cemetery in Nova Scotia, here lies Ezekiel Aki, age 102, the good die young. <laughs> in a cemetery in Ribsford, England, says the children of Israel wanted bread and the Lord sent them manna. The old Clark Wallace wanted a wife and the devil sent him Anna. <laughs> Poor Anna. <laughs> In Bedell, Yorkshire, remember, friend, when passing by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon will be. Prepare for death and follow me. And then in graffiti on the bottom, to follow you, I am not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, the epitaph on the um, grave of comedian Spike Milligan, who died in 2002 of liver failure, was argued about for a few years by his family members, but eventually they settled with... I told you I was sick. (laughs) Of course, most epitaphs are a bit more serious, aren't they? They they reflect the character and the the nature of the person for whom they're for. Um, For example, the epitaph on the grave of Martin Luther King Jr. says, Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. Amazing words for a man whose life was lived in pursuit of freedom and equality. But Mary's epitaph was this, that she did what she could. Jesus says that she would be remembered for it, for wherever and whenever the gospel is preached. What she did was one of the most um, wonderful and most lavish and most sincere acts of true worship that we have in our Bible. And that word worship, you know, it can mean different things to different people, can't it? Depending on your experience and your, your background. If you have been part of sort of a high church tradition, it might mean sort of pomp and ceremony and the sort of special garments and, and all the incense and things that are waved around. Um, if you're sort of a, a lower church person, it might mean some liturgy or some tradition and, and maybe a sense of decorum and, and solemnity. If you're um, a, a charismatic or Pentecostal as we are, it might mean worship bands and, and guitars and music and lots of woohoo, Jesus, amen, yeah, hallelujah, woohoo. We can do a bit more of that, I think. Prayer and prophetic words for others. But true worship isn't about the externals. It's not about the guitars or the music or the buildings or the choirs or the hymns or the robes or any of that. Essentially, worship is about the heart. 
It's about what's going on inside of us. And here we find a person who pours out not only perfume upon Jesus, but pours out her heart as well. As many of you know, the, the, the word worship comes from an Anglo-Saxon word, worth-ship, which is about attributing value or worth to something. When we worship God, we're declaring how valuable God is to us. So how valuable was Jesus to Mary? Well, there's a couple of things that spring to mind when we think about this. Firstly, in John's Gospel, before um, Mary anointed Jesus, Jesus had raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead for at least four days, and he said, Lazarus, come out, and he came out. Now, we might be wrong, but I think probably she was just a little bit pleased that Jesus had done that for her. Try to place yourself in her shoes, how grateful she must have been. No gift or sacrifice would seem too costly for the one who had done this. How could she ever repay Jesus? Of course she couldn't, but she made a gesture. She took the most precious thing that she possessed and she spent it all on Jesus. Love is not a love if it calculates the cost. This alabaster jar was probably made with marble. It had a long, thin neck and it was probably a family heirloom. It's likely that it was passed down from mother to daughter through the generations. It would have been the most valuable thing that she possessed, let alone the perfume that was contained within. You know, in the Middle East, it was customary for the host to give his guests water to wash their feet as they came in. The, the roads were dustier then and to welcome them with a kiss of peace and then to anoint them with oil, which was both a, a mark of honor and a mark of respect. But Mary took this anointing to a whole new level. It wasn't just oil, but expensive perfume, a year's wages worth. She didn't place a dab on Jesus' head and then put the cork back into the bottle, but she broke it, Mark tells us. She broke the jar, never to be used again by anybody else. Incredible. The second thing that springs to mind when we think about Mary, this particular Mary, is that she was the woman who sat at Jesus' feet listening to what he said. We can read about that in Luke chapter 10. Her sister, Martha, was distracted by all the preparations for the meal. You remember the story? Martha actually comes to Jesus and says, tell her to help me. Come on, I'm doing all the work here in the kitchen. Just get her to come out and chop some carrots or something. I think that's the message translation. Um, but Jesus informs Martha that Mary had chosen the better way. It would appear that Mary, the one who sat at Jesus' feet, listening to what he said, had a deeper spiritual insight into what was about to happen in a few days' time, as Jesus would give his life for the sins of the world. Better understanding than even the disciples. I spoke about this last week, didn't I, how the disciples had a selective hearing problem. They didn't want to think about the death of Jesus. They didn't really understand what he was talking about. Peter even tried to talk Jesus out of it, but Mary was different. Instead of debating or denying his death, she turned the occasion into an opportunity for deep devotion. She said already, Jesus said, she's prepared me for my burial. She did what she could. And the motivation behind her actions was love. It was out of a heart filled with gratitude that she broke the jar. We cannot ever pay God back for what he has so freely given us through Jesus. But if we truly understand grace, I believe we will respond with every morsel of our being, every breath we breathe, every ounce of energy that we have. Grace 
it would seem, demands a response from us. If we are to understand God's grace properly, then there is nothing that we, that there is nothing that we can do to make him love us less, and nothing that we can do to make us love us more. It changes everything. Bishop R.C. Riley once uh, wrote at the turn of the century these words. If a man understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or costly to give to Christ. He will fear wasting time, talents, money on things of this world, he will be, but he will not be afraid of wasting them on his Savior. He will fear going into the extremes about business, money, politics, or pleasure, but he will not be afraid of doing too much for the Lord. Challenging words indeed. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 48, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From everyone who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. What have we been given? Well, not much, only salvation forgiveness and a new start and a clean slate and eternal life and inner peace and a Christian family family and dignity and purpose and joy and contentment. We've been given much. What have we been entrusted with? Well, the Holy Spirit, that deposit that guarantees our salvation, that power that we've been singing about this morning. We've been entrusted with the gospel. Paul says we're the ambassadors for the gospel. It's up to us to take it into the world and we've been given a commission from God. To go and tell people. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. From everyone who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Grace always demands a response. Mary was a true worshipper, and there's a cost to being a true worshipper. Because true worship is, is not a, a, a song or, or an isolated act, but it's a lifestyle. True worship happens when we make costly decisions in following Jesus. It has as much to do with a Monday morning as it does with a Sunday morning. It has as much to do with us serving others in Christ's name and supporting the orphans and the widows and the rough sleepers and the poor as it does about singing hymns and listening to sermons. True worship is more than words. Jesus said um, about the religious leaders of the day that these people... These leaders, these religious folk, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. They worship me in vain. May that never be said about us. We sing so many wonderful songs, some of which are statements of what we believe, but many others are words of adoration and love of our relationship with God. One of the most provoking songs we sing is an old song by Matt Redman called When the Music Fades, and there's a line in the song which says this, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. If you search much deeper within, through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. And it's true. I thank God for the songs that we sing. Anyone who knows me knows that um, I love singing. (laughs) I'm not great at it, but I love singing. Singing, And I love singing more than anything to my Lord and Saviour. And we're so blessed as a church, aren't we, to have such a wonderful and committed musician, to have such a passion for leading us into the presence of God that we can encounter him so powerfully as we do on a Sunday morning. Um, And I need to be careful now because I've complimented them twice this morning and I don't want their heads getting too big. 
But to sing a song on its own doesn't necessarily constitute worship. Because true worship is often, singing, is often costly, whereas singing a song isn't. It's costly to those that hear me singing, but for us, it isn't. True worship occurs when we make those hard decisions in our lives because we're followers of Jesus. When we make the difficult decision because he is worth it. That's what worship means, that he is worth it. Cambon McAlpine recalls a story in his book of biblical meditation of a young girl coming to see him after a worship service. She was obviously troubled. And during the worship time, the Lord revealed to her that there was something in her life that she shouldn't have. A horse. Jill's parents were farmers and she was an accomplished rider. And she felt the Lord saying to her, sell it and give the money to missionaries. And Campbell encouraged her to do what she felt the Lord was telling her to obey is to know real joy in our lives. And some time later, he received a letter from her informing him of what had happened. She'd gone home and she'd placed an advert in the local paper, but there were no replies. So she took the horse to the um, annual agricultural fair in a nearby town. She waited for her turn to ride the horse around the sales ring, but she felt despondent because the prices that were being offered were particularly low that day. As she took her turn, the prices went higher and higher and higher, and eventually she got a good price for the horse. She asked the auctioneer if she could meet the new owner so that she could tell him what the horse liked and disliked. Parting would be sad, but she chose to obey God. As she was waiting, her uncle told her to put the horse back into the truck. She said, I can't do that. I've, I've sold it. He said, I know. And when your grandmother heard that you, what you were going to do, she asked me to buy it for her. When Jill got home, her grandmother gave her the money for the horse, and she sent it to the missionary work and also gave her the horse back. Jill wrote to Campbell and said that although she had the horse back, it never had the same place in her life again. I think that story is a wonderful example of true worship. The disciples, along with Martha and Lazarus and Simon the leper, watched as Mary poured this expensive perfume over Jesus' head and his feet and then untied her hair to wipe them. It's a really interesting um, detail that's included there, actually, because it was... Um, shame, considered shameful for, for women to have their hair out in public. It was unthinkable. So this act of worship is, is extravagant and unrestrained, and you might even say actually that it was undignified. It's kind of, there's something shocking about it. It would have been great to, to see their faces around the room, that momentary awkward silence that was, of course, broken by Judas' objection. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. As John writes about this incident, he tells us that Judas did this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was the treasurer and he helped himself to the funds. And we're going to look at Judas next week. But Judas wasn't the only critic in the room. Mark in his gospel tells us that the other disciples rebuked her harshly. And you know, even at face value, Judas' argument appears to be um, plausible. Maybe even spiritual. We might even find some sympathy with the view that the poor should have been looked at as a priority over this extravagant act of worship. Many people think 
the same way as Judas today. They believe that to pour out anything directly to the Lord without having an end product in view is simply a waste. Even in our own community, there are many that we know will be willing to commend the various works of compassion that we as a church are involved in. They would say, you know, well done for your, your winter night shelter, for providing food and, 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 and warm bed for rough sleepers. Well done for the food bank and the way that you feed the poor. You know, it's great that you have prime time and how you look after the, the elderly in the town. And it's brilliant that you have the coffee shop, you know, doing that community thing and giving away free food and all the rest of it. And there are many that are inspired by our, our, our social outreach programs, but they cannot understand why we would get so excited over God. It doesn't make sense to them. Like Judas, they see our excitement as a waste of time. Yet, and this is so important, we are called to be worshippers before we are called to be workers. In truth, our work for God springs out of our worship of God, not the other way around. It's our Christian faith that, that motivates us, that inspires us to do what we do. It's the, it's the driving force behind us, the engine room. Mary responded in gratitude to what Jesus had done for her. And as we reach out to the hurting and the lonely of Tamworth, we too are responding to the grace and love that God has shown to us first. We don't do what we do because we're philanthropists or because we're good-hearted people or, or because we believe in charity, but we do it as an act of worship. It's our equivalent of breaking the alabaster jar and pouring the perfume on Jesus. In serving the poor and the marginalized, we are serving Christ. Peter writes later on, You are a chosen people. He's talking about you lot. A royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's our calling, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Worship is about our lives. It's about our whole being. It's about the person that we are at home, at work, at leisure, not merely about church services, but it has to do with our actions and our reactions and our motivation and our attitude as much as it does with the things that we do in the four walls here of this church. I wonder if um, the band would come and join me. I'll bring it to a close. There's a little detail a little detail that John gives us that's so easily missed, but is so beautiful. Listen to what he says again. He says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. When Mary broke the jar, it would have gone everywhere. It would have gone on Jesus, but it would have gone on her as well. And for days, she would have smelt the same as Jesus. You know, we live in a world that's fallen and corrupt and sinful and broken and hurting and very often desperate, without hope. And wherever we go, whether it's amongst 
family or friends or believers or non-believers, Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 2.5 that we are the aroma of Christ among those who are saved and those who are perishing. I love that verse in Acts when Peter and John stand before the courts of judges who were amazed at them. And they said when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. When our hearts are full of love and worship, we take something of the fragrance of Christ with us. We smell like him. Others notice that there is something different about us because we've been with Jesus. And so as we go this morning and as we reflect on this act of worship, this incredible act of worship that we've read about this morning and maybe the worship we've experienced in this place this morning, I just want to encourage you that we don't leave that here, but that our worship continues into our lives. Wherever we go, whatever we're engaged in, we bring about the praises of God in this world. Let's just pray together.